Well, you may not know this about me, but uh, in high school, I was a pole vaulter. Now, not a very good pole vaulter, but nonetheless, I can say that I was a pole vaulter. And one of the things that my pole vaulting friends and I would say is, you got to go big or go home, all right? Uh, for example, the shot put. If, I, uh, if I'm a shot putter, I can take my shot put and I can throw it as far as I can, or I can go like that. And the only thing that happens is it doesn't go very far, so you don't have to go big or go home when you shot put or throw the discus or the javelin, right? But pole vaulting is a little different. Three things have to come together just right for the pole vault. You have to have enough speed, you have to have enough vertical leap, and you have to have the technique just right to get the pole in the little hole so you go forward and onto those big fluffy pits, those big pads that you get to fall into. And everyone looks at those pads and says, pole vaulting's easy. If you fall, you just fall into the pad. But you only fall into the pad if you go far enough, right? So you have to go big or go home. And one day at practice, I was fatigued at the end of practice, and I should have just gone home. But I said, I want to get a few more vaults in, so I make my approach too slow, too weak on my jump. I mean, I can't jump well anyway, because I'm me. And, uh, and I go up, 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 lift my legs up, and all of a sudden... The pole snapped, and I am on my back on the approach way because I didn't have enough to get all the way through. Go big or go home. There are so many things in life that you just can't do halfway. It just doesn't work out. That's why I hate preseason football in the Pro Bowl because you got a bunch of guys going halfway and they get hurt all the time, so I don't like those things. But following Jesus is one of those things that you just can't do Part way. Got to go big or go home. Jesus, for example, didn't sort of rescue us, right? Like, he went all the way. He changed the way he existed. When you think about that, like, here's Jesus, part of the Trinity. I don't know what he was like before, but he became, like, the Bible makes a big deal that he became flesh. Like, he changed how he actually existed to rescue us. Jesus didn't sort of make some calculated sacrifice. No, he was stripped naked and beaten and mocked and nailed to a cross. He was crucified for us. Jesus didn't sort of come back from the grave like a ghost, you know, this ethereal spirit. He was resurrected in a new body for all time. And when Jesus calls us to follow, he doesn't say, hey, just join up with me when it's convenient, when you have the time. He doesn't say, trust me, when you get your life all figured out, when, you know, when your career gets going and you have enough in the bank account, that'd be a good time to, to you know, start following me. He says, die to yourself, pick up your cross and follow me. Go big or go home. One of the things I love about the Apostle Paul's letter to the Ephesians is, first of all, he talks about a God who goes big. God doesn't hold back. He talks about the God who created all things. Paul's God is the one who died for us. Paul's God is the one who chose us before the foundation of the world. Paul's God is the one who rules the heavens and the earth. Paul's God is the one who broke down dividing walls between Jews and Gentiles and men and women and social classes and ethnicities. Paul's God is rich in mercy and love and power. Paul's God goes big. And you know what that does to Paul? It makes Paul's theology go big. His view of God is gigantic. 
Paul writes to the church to spur us on to trust in this big God, this powerful God, this loving God. Paul calls us to live into our calling. He reminds us that all things will be brought together, summed up, made whole in Christ. That's big theology. He tells us that because Christ broke down walls of division, that we should relate to one another as brothers and sisters. That we can approach God as Father. That we, the church, are the living temple of God. His theology is so grandiose that he says the mystery of God is revealed somehow in the church. God's special plan is revealed in you and me. And that's amazing. In fact, for three chapters now, Paul has been enthusiastically proclaiming the bigness of our God and God's big view of you and me, the church. And this evening we're going to bring chapter 3 of Ephesians to a close. And it's no surprise to me how Paul chooses to close this section. He does it with prayer. It's like he's been praying throughout this whole, te- whole thing in the first place. But would you stand with me as we read Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. Receive this prayer. I know that sometimes when you, you hear a, a text preached or when you read it, you just think, oh, these are just words. This is Paul's prayer to us. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth derives its name, that He would grant you, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth And to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly, beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us, to Him be the glory in the church and in Jesus Christ to all generations forever and ever. Lord Jesus, thank You for this prayer. Thank You for this word. Would you help it in the power of your Spirit to take root in our hearts? That it would become effective in our lives. That we would leave changed people because of what you're going to do in us. Amen. You may be seated. So they say, I don't know who they are, I say, if you want want to know a person's heart, listen to the way they pray. We pray about what's important to us. Prayers are revealing. They're intimate. So it's fascinating to me to see how Paul prays and what he prays for. After all this amazing theology about God and the church, what is it actually that Paul is praying for? The first observation isn't so much what Paul asks for, but how he prays. Paul falls to his knees before the Father. Now the most common way for people to pray, Jewish and and early Christians in the first century, was to stand up with hands outstretched. That was the most common way. It wasn't unknown to kneel. But kneeling in prayer was an act of great humility, of awe and reverence. 
And it says, For this reason... I bow my knees before the Father. Paul is so overwhelmed, it seems, with the gratitude and uh, the, the majesty of God, of all that God has done up until this point, it brings him to his knees. At the same time of kneeling, which is such a show of reverence and humility, he's on his knees for all that God has done in his life. At the same time, he doesn't pray, Oh, all-powerful, almighty, distant God. He prays to his Father. He prays to our Father. For many, addressing God as Father is hard. It's a stumbling block for many of us, right? None of us, no person has a perfect Father, and for some, not perfect is quite an understatement. The amount of physical and emotional abuse at the hands of fathers around the world, let alone in our country, it's staggering. There are many fathers who maybe never actively abuse their kids, but they're distant or checked out, maybe because of their career. Maybe they just don't know how to relate. But this term father in Scripture, it's meant to be an endearing term. First of all, it has nothing to do with gender. God isn't male. He isn't female. He isn't human. He isn't gendered. But God is a person. He's not an it. He's not a thing. He's not a cloud of energy. And this God, what we learn in Scripture, what we learn about how He relates to people, He's relational. In Paul's culture, fathers were not merely half of a child's DNA. They were providers and protectors and masters of their whole family. Jesus Himself prayed to God as Father. And sometimes He called Him Abba, which is an endearing term that a young child might, might call their beloved father or even a grandfather Abba, Daddy. It means Daddy in Aramaic. For those who have a hard time thinking of God as Father being a good thing, I always try and point back to Jesus. I look at Jesus' life. In John 14, it says, If you've seen me, Jesus is saying, If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. When I look at how Jesus interacted with such warmth and, and wit and compassion, and strength, and love, and joy. We're seeing the Father there in the words and deeds of Jesus. And if the Father is like Jesus, then I can get down with bowing to Him. I can get down with praying to that type of person, that type of Father. Amen? When Paul is writing this letter, his reference to God as Father wouldn't have been a stumbling block to many. It would have been revolutionary. You see, in the Roman world, people related to gods with fear and suspicion. The gods were vindictive. They were open to taking bribes from you. They were not gods who loved people. Relating to the Greek and Roman gods was mechanical. I give this sacrifice... I pray this many times, and hopefully, maybe the gods will look upon me with some kind of kindness. And if they don't, if my life is going bad, well, then I probably didn't pray the right way or give the right sacrifices. That was kind of the mindset of the Greek and Roman world and the way they related to their gods. So Paul's prayer to God as Father is special because it evokes a sense that God is intimately involved in our lives. He's not some distant, uninterested deity that we have to beg for attention. He's our Father, our Protector, our Creator. He is with us. 
it's weird when I say that because I look around the room and I'm, I, I, so many of us have heard that before. God is Father, oh, and that's a good thing, and we have this relationship with Him. But I find that for myself, and I think maybe you can relate to this too, don't we often act as though God were one of those Roman or Greek gods? We think of Him sometimes as a machine, that if we put in enough money or effort or time or prayer, then He'll have to do what we want. And we actually get ticked off at God when our life doesn't go well. Because we deserve something. That's not only bad theology, it's idolatry. We say Jesus rose from the dead and now actively reigns, but don't we deep down often live as though God is uninterested with our day-to-day stuff? Do you really think God cares about how you're parenting or how your job is going or how your job hunt is going, how your relationships are going? I wonder if we expect God to show up in our lives at all. See, that doesn't jive with Scripture. From the very beginning, God is shown to be relational. He walks in the garden with the first people, with Adam and Eve. He talks with them. I mean, that's one of the first things that we learn about Him. He spoke to Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. God was with Moses and the Israelites. He was with them in their suffering. He delivered them. He was with them in the desert in a pillar of smoke by day and a pillar of fire by night. Later, He indwelled the tabernacle where people could interact with Him. And and then after that, the temple. And eventually, the people rebelled enough times where He said, I'm withdrawing my presence from the temple. It's all about God's presence. That's what people were longing for when they're in captivity is for God's presence to return. And that's why Jesus' birth is such an amazing thing. What was Jesus called? Emmanuel. The with us God. This is Jesus' birth, His incarnation, is God's presence coming back to be with the people. Jesus is God with the people. And when He died and rose and ascended, He sent His Spirit on all who believe. His presence. And Paul has just got done saying earlier on in this book that you and I who make up the church are the living temple of God. His presence dwells among us. That's awesome. So Paul prays to this father from whom every family in heaven and earth derives its name. He prays to the patera ex upasa patria. Come on now. Patera, Father, ex-u, from ex is out. The Father, from out of which every family derives its name. Every one of us comes out of the Father. Go big or go home. That's a big God. The Creator of all. And by the way, if that is so, if God is the Father of every person, then everyone is a brother or a sister to you and I. And that might just have some implications when we're thinking about such things as health care and economics and immigration, I'm just saying. How we relate to one another. 
We didn't simply come from the Father, but Paul says that we derive our name from Him. In the ancient world, when someone gives you their name, it's not just a way to like mark you out as different from someone else. It's not so I, you know, James isn't James and Eric, Eric, so I don't confuse them. I mean, who could confuse them? Right? Yeah, yeah. Maybe you and Art Matheny. But, yeah. But a name was, was showing someone's... Uh, ownership and someone blessing over you. So for God to give us his name, for us to be derived out of his name, that means that he actually is not ashamed that we are associated with his family. Wow. And that's just the opening of Paul's prayer. So I better get going faster here. Let's get on to what Paul is praying for. First of all, he prays that we would be strengthened. He acknowledges that God is rich in glory, which means he's able to do all this stuff that Paul's praying for. And Paul wants the church to be strengthened with power. Of course, you've probably heard this before. The Greek word for power here is dunamis, from where we get dynamic and dynamite. That's my favorite. He prays that the Holy Spirit would give us this dynamite power in the inner person. Now, what is the inner person? Well, you don't know? I have my inner person right here. Benjamin Wasserman, let me borrow this to be my inner person. It is a Lego Boba Fett. Or is this Django? Yeah, Django. I'm so, I'm so ashamed I didn't know that. Yeah, so this, this is my inner person, and he just stays with me. And so God gives all that power to this, this inner person. Now, how weird would that be? That's like some kind of Japanese anime thing where there's like a little guy in a big robot body. That, that's not what he's talking about as little Lego man, uh, the inner person. The inner person is another way of talking about the heart or the personality or the seed of character, who you really are and who I really am. It's who we are when no one else is looking. It's where we make all the decisions in our life. It's the inner person, the heart. And who doesn't need to be strengthened with Holy Spirit dynamite power in the inner person? Have you tried following Jesus lately? Yeah, it's hard. It's impossible without the empowering of the Spirit helping us along. We need the Father's strength and power in the inner person. Amen? If we want to start seeing Children of God, when we look at people, instead of sex objects or commodities, we need the power of God in the inner person. If we want to live with Jesus' perspective, when we're at work, or when we're parenting, when we're interacting with people in our city, we need to be transformed in the inner person. We need that spiritual dynamite. Let's pause for a moment. I know that if you have a bulletin, there's some sermon notes there. As you consider following Jesus, where would you like to ask God for His power to help you transform something in your life? Where do you need this dynamite power in your life? See, Paul is praying a huge prayer here. That, that tells me something. It tells me that according to Paul, and we believe his words here are inspired, this is scripture. Uh, according to the scriptures, 
We don't just need a little tune-up in life. Right? He's not saying, hey, we're pretty good. You just need a little tweaking. You just need to work on these little areas and you're going to be fine, just like Jesus. Just ease into this discipleship thing naturally. It just comes so easy. I don't know what your problem is. See, Paul knows that we either need to go big or go home with this. We need to be all in. We need this transforming power in the inner person if we're going to make headway in being like Jesus. We need the potency of God's power. And the good news, the gospel in all of this, is that we can ask the Father through whom we have boldness and confident access, as Paul has just said a few weeks ago in our sermon series. Paul prays for all of this strengthening, and then he asks that Christ may dwell in our hearts by faith. That's what we need. Christ dwelling in us. All that power, that spiritual dynamite is great, but I know myself, and power alone is a dangerous thing. I will distort it, I will abuse it, I'll neglect it, I'll disregard it, I'll take it for granted. I know myself, I need more. I need more than just power in the inner person. I need Jesus. I need Jesus to help me to see things differently, to help me be wise in how to mitigate that power. I need Jesus to help me change. Paul needed Jesus. Paul prayed this prayer because he knew the church would need Jesus. Paul knows that the world needs Jesus. And you know how the world's going to see Jesus? Through you and me who have decided, who have been called to follow him. So why is it then... You know, you and I, some of you have been following Jesus for a while. We've prayed prayers like this before, been baptized, we take communion. Why is it then that we're not more effective Christians? I mean, sure, the church has done amazing things throughout history. Uh, I would, you know, I can just rattle off a million things. Well, not a million, but a lot. A lot of great things that the church has done. I, I don't think it's been all for naught. But certainly, if the church is made up of people with Jesus living inside them, how, how come we're not more potent in our world for change? Don't you get the sense that there's got to be more to it than this? It's either... It's either because Paul's theology is wrong and we really can't change, or because somewhere along the line, we abort the process. We're afraid to go big. I think somewhere along the line, we get comfortable being the way we are, and we don't want to go all the way. In biblical Greek, there are two main ways of saying dwell, like Jesus dwelling in our hearts. One way... Is parakoikeo. It means to dwell as a visitor. Parakoikeo describes the way a relative might come to visit you for the weekend and then they leave. I mean, it's just a short visit, right? The other Greek word is katoikeo. Katoikeo means to take up permanent residence, to move in. So last Monday, Corey had to work. She normally doesn't work on Monday, so we had a childcare issue. So her aunt Elaine came up from Redmond and stayed the night to help us with childcare. It was great. So what we do when Elaine comes to visit or anyone comes to visit for a short time is we have this playroom where we have one of those Euro sleeper couches and we make it into a bed and we make the bed, or Corey makes the bed, and then we just basically throw all the toys under that bed. 
And we kind of vacuum and we kind of straighten up all the junk in there and we make it somewhat hospitable. Because all she's doing there is, is coming in for a, a parakoiko. I mean, she's just a short stay, right? Like, nothing's really changed. But what if Elaine or some other member of the family or friend was actually going to move in with us? Koikeo, right? What if they were going to, to not just stay for a short time? Well, we would have a totally different strategy. We'd probably downsize, get rid of a lot of junk that's in the way. We might even remodel the whole home for this different dynamic, for this different thing that's going on. I think the reason we're not more full of Christ, more effective in ministry, more potent as a church, is because we really don't want Jesus to move in. We like Him to visit from time to time. It's okay at church or Bible study. We're hanging out with our Christian circle of friends, right? And, and we, we do the little things. We put the junk under the couch, and we straighten up a little bit, and we say the right things and don't say certain things, and we put on a good front. But man, we don't want Him to be here all the time. We've grown, I think, too comfortable with the saying, Jesus is in my heart. You can ask my kids right now, where's Jesus? He's in my heart. And we, we hear people say things like, if you want to follow Jesus, all you've got to do is ask him into your heart. Like, what does that mean? Does that mean that Jesus forgives us and makes us feel good about ourselves and makes us happy? Does that mean that we hope Jesus will, I don't know, just make us feel joy all the time? New Testament scholar Klein Snodgrass writes, The thought that we can believe in Christ without actually being like Him is absurd. If Christ's dwelling doesn't transform us somehow, we must question strenuously whether Christ is present at all. See, Christians worry about assurance of their salvation, and other Christians seek to remove all doubt. But maybe we should let doubt do its work. Maybe we should be more concerned about the validity of our faith than assurance of salvation. Honest doubt can be healthy. You didn't hear, think you'd hear that in church. <laughs> I think I see what he's saying there is we're so, we're so stuck on being comfortable, we don't consider, if Christ is in me, shouldn't my life be somewhat different? And, and if it's not different, what is holding me back? See, Paul's prayer calls us to go big. He prays that Jesus would take up permanent residence in our hearts. We need to remodel the whole house to make room for the king. That means we invite Jesus into the dark areas and ask him to transform them. We invite him to work. We ask him to help us make choices that honor him and serve others, and make the world a better place. It means we invite Jesus into our relationships, into our romances, and into our friendships. We ask Him to give us true love for people, and integrity, and joy, and patience. And we ask Him to rule in our inner person. Right? Rule in our inner person. Make us different people, not just people who sometimes are able to do some different things. Well, Paul continues to pray that we would have roots like a, like a plant that go deep into his love. And then in the same thought process, he switches metaphors from plants to building. He says, I pray that you have roots that go deep into the love of Christ and that you have a life built on a foundation built on the love of Christ. And that we would be able to comprehend. That, that word comprehend, it's not like memorizing for a test. In Greek, the word is to seize, to take hold of, 
to grasp. He wants us to take hold of the breadth and length and height and depth of Christ's love. To know, to taste even this love that we can't really fully comprehend. And while we may never fully know the dimensions, the absolute vastness of Christ's love, we can still experience it. Just like I can experience the joy of swimming in the Pacific Ocean, at least south of San Diego or in the Hawaiian Islands where it's warm, I can experience that joy and I don't understand all the nooks and crannies of the vast Pacific Ocean. We can experience Christ's love. We don't have to understand, fathom every depth, uh, every dimension of it. And Paul prays that we would know this deep love of Jesus because it's what motivates us. It's what keeps us seeking after Him. The love of Jesus carries us through all things in life. Jesus is with us even when we suffer, even when we don't feel good, even when we don't feel whole. In fact, James Montgomery Boyce tells a story about Napoleon and his men when he came into power. He went into an island prison. And they found a prisoner there in a dark dungeon who had been chained up during the Spanish Inquisition for his faith. And all they found were bones and an ankle shackle to those bones. But scratched in the wall was a cross. And in Spanish, the word for height, depth, length, width. That person died chained to a wall in a dungeon for their faith. Now, I might say, where was God? I don't know that I'd be man enough to have that kind of faith. To say, no, even in this, I'm experiencing the love of Christ which transcends any kind of boundaries. Don't forget, Paul is writing these words from prison. Right? And I don't see Paul in this prayer saying, hey guys, uh, I'm writing to seven churches here because I want to start this prayer chain where you guys pray that I get released. In fact, he never asks for his release. What he does ask us to pray for later on in this book is that he would have boldness in his proclamation of the gospel while he's in prison. Christ has truly taken up residence in Paul. Paul has gone big, and he prays that the seven churches of Asia would go big, and I'm sure that he would hope that our church and the church today would go big, that we would know the deep, deep love of Jesus. Our problem is, I think, that we have too small of a conception of God. He's too much like us. He's too limited, too skeptical, too jaded, too efficient. God's too busy. He's too selfish because I make him in my image. That's not Paul's God, and that's not our God. You may have doubts that God can change your inner person, but take heart. This is your God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly, beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen.